Today's passage is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we ended last week's message, we were able to go over or briefly touch upon the doctrine of solus Christus, which means it is only by Christ we are saved. That means Christ is the only Savior. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And it says, And this is when Peter was in front of the high priest, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. B.B. Warfield writes this, The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. Christ is central to our faith and to salvation. Who Christ is and what he did, referring to his life, death, and resurrection, is absolutely fundamental to our faith. And this is what scripture is pointing to. Zwingli writes this, Christ is the head of all believers who are his body, and without him the body is dead. Zwingli, who was a reformer, um, Junzig and I were early joking about how it's such a great name if you name your kid Zwingli or Ulrich. Uh, but, you know, we don't see many Ulrichs around these days. But he was one of the key reformers of the Reformation, and this is what he said, because Zwingli understood the dichotomy between knowing Christ and not knowing him is the difference between life and death. Knowing Christ and not knowing him is the difference between life and death. In Philippians 4.13, we know that all things are possible in Christ. That's life. And on the other hand, in John 15, 5, this is what Jesus said, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So either you could do all things in Christ, or you can do nothing. That is the contrast that we are shown in the scriptures and by Jesus himself when he was on this earth. You know, the past three years we have been going deep 
excavating what the Lord teaches us through his word by going verse by verse in Exodus, in Matthew, and so on. And in the past three weeks, we have gone through the Bible with a broader lens, hitting different parts of the Bible, showing that the Bible isn't just 66 books with 40 authors over a span of 2,000 years. It's actually one book written by one author who is God. And this is what that means. As deep as you go, it has to make sense as wide as you go. Otherwise, you can surmise that you have a bad interpretation. And of course, in the same way, as wide as we go, as we will today, it should make sense no matter how deep we go into any particular verse and passage of the Bible. This is why theology is so important. We've gone through various portions of Scripture elaborating on soteriology and Christology. And today I hope to go a little further into the Christology portion. Because I believe that today we need to hear and understand what solus Christus means more than ever. In a world where we are encouraged to think that any claim to absolute, objective truth is intellectually defunct, we are called to stand against this panentheistic current. The Jesus of the Bible must be believed, not some figment of your imagination taken from bits and pieces of whatever you believe your ontological reality would dictate. And I suppose to put it simply would be this way, to put it this way, and that's Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible. Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible. And so to know who Jesus is, one must study the Bible, the entirety of it, from Genesis to Revelation. Because anything less, you don't have Jesus. Anything more, you don't have Jesus. And it has been, and it is my absolute joy to go through the Word of God with you. And it will be for as long as I am able. In the Bible, we are shown as Jesus holding a threefold office. Threefold office. And I want to make clear that the language I want to use is a threefold office, which is singular, not three offices. And you may have heard this before. Because I don't want to let off the impression that Jesus can take off one hat to put on another. Like, I'm going to put on my good cop hat and I'm nice to you. And then I have to take off my good cop hat to put on my bad cop hat to be mean to you. Jesus would be someone in this example who has both good cop and bad cop hats on. He doesn't switch from one personality or roles to another. This is why people get confused when we hear things like, Jesus is our judge and our savior. And this is why if you continue to think that he can take off and put on hats, that's why people think they can pick and choose one or the other, quote-unquote, Jesus. And we hear things like, my Jesus is the kind of Jesus that would never judge people. 
That's not true. Jesus himself, we saw in Matthew, says he is the judge. And so, what is this threefold office? Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. I'll be focusing on one, king, which is apt because of Matthew, but as we'll see, you won't be able to define king as the Bible intends without understanding the other two folds of the office. So, who is Jesus as king, priest, and prophet? And we saw this kingly imagery in Matthew when they put on Jesus a purple robe and in his hand a scepter and on his head a crown and behind him read a sign that said this is the king of the Jews but as we studied Matthew and we look closer and closer these images were ironic because it was a scarlet robe that had been faded by the sun the scepter was a stick they used to beat him with and the crown was made of thorns which pierced his brow and the sign that said this is the king of the Jews was hung behind him on the cross on which he was crucified. And this is a confusing image for us because kings are associated with power, dominion, sovereignty, it's not associated with suffering and sacrifice. Because suffering is what the prophets went through. Sacrifice is what the priests did. Not kings. But the Bible continues to show us that the people of God will be saved by a suffering king. In Genesis God creates humans in his image, which we call the imago Dei, in chapter 1, verse 27. And after he creates them, he gives them this charge and blessing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word dominion would bring the listener to this idea of kingship. Dominion is rule and reign. And in chapter 2, we see the specifics of this dominion. And when God puts Adam in the garden, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says that he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. And if you look at those words, in the Hebrew, work it is translated from the word abad. And keep it is translated from the word shamar, abad and shamar. So Adam put, so God put Adam in the garden to abad and shamar. And we want to see these words in context. 
We want to see Abad and Shamar in context. We see it used in conjunction also in another part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In Numbers, when God gives instructions to the priests, to the priests, in Numbers 3.8, it says, They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of the meeting, of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. tabernacle excuse me. Guard is translated from shamar, and minister is translated from abad. These are the exact words used here. To abad and shamar were not only duties given to the king, but it was also a priestly duty. In fact, in Numbers 18, when the Lord describes the duties of the Levites to Aaron, the two words that continue to show up over and over again are ministry and keep guard. Ministry, abad, and keep guard, shamar. You are to abad and shamar over the tabernacle. This is no coincidence. And this connection is purposeful because just as the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God, the Garden of Eden in its essence was the perfect temple. It was the dwelling place of God where he met man. And just as the priests were to abad and shamar this dwelling place, this was originally God's task to Adam. Abad and Shamar, the garden. But Adam completely fails at this task. He not only fell short in both these roles, he completely does the opposite of what he was called to do. Instead of work or minister Abad, and instead of keeping and guarding this dwelling place, Shamaring the dwelling place, he lets the serpent in. And not only does he let the serpent in, he surrenders to the serpent, allowing sin to enter into this most holy place. Instead of carrying out the mandate by God to have dominion and rule over the world, he sides with Satan and rebels against God. This rebellion was to usurp God as ultimate king and to take that crown for himself. I assure you, you will not die to take that crown for himself. And just as we started this message with that ironic picture, the irony here is that Adam and Eve receive the punishment of God. They receive the punishment of God in Genesis 3, but the original mandate is still there. It does not change with the fall. Adam and Eve still have to be fruitful and multiply. Adam still has to work the ground. But the change is now it will be through pain and sweat. The irony here is that once the earth submitted to Adam's dominion, but no more, the earth would only reluctantly bring forth its fruits, and instead of Adam subduing the earth, 
he would be subdued by the earth, for it is the curse on Adam that we read that God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And after they are kicked out of the garden, God sends an angel which would guard the way in. This is all in Genesis chapter 3, which would guard the way in. That word guard is shamar. Adam should have protected the garden, but he didn't. So the ultimate king would do so himself. However, however, in the curse of the serpent, there is a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a new king that is promised. So who is this promised king? Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Nope. Abel dies, so he can't be it. And Cain is the one that kills him, so he's definitely not it. And so we go down the line to see who would be this fulfillment of the promised king. In Genesis 5, the very next chapter, there is a lineage. And with each birth, we are left with asking is he the promised one? Is it Seth? Nope. He dies. Is it Enosh then? Nope. He dies too. And you go down the line and whoop, there is a promising one. A promising one. Enoch. He walked with God. It would have been reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So is Enoch the promised one? Nope. Why? Because God takes him. And so we continue to go down. This person dies and that person dies. We go all the way down to Lamech and he has a son. And Lamech believes with all his heart that his son is the promised one. You know why? Because he names his son Noah. And this is what he says after he names his son Noah in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. But Noah doesn't save them. Instead, there is judgment that wipes the whole earth and Noah also dies. Fast forward to Genesis 12, and Abraham is introduced. And God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. The word offspring is from the Hebrew word zerah, which is the same word used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Offspring, Zerah. And when God talks about offspring after Genesis 3.15, again, this is the time. And he says, the righteous king will come through Abraham. So who is going to get the scepter? 
Who is going to get this rule? Is it Abraham? Nope. It's going to come through Abraham. So then is it Isaac? Nope, he dies. Is it Jacob? Nope, he dies. And then we see an offspring of Jacob rise up, and he becomes the second highest in all of Egypt and essentially the world and saves his people from starvation. So is it Joseph? Is Joseph the promised one? And as you continue to read, you go to chapter 49 of Genesis, and when Jacob gives his blessing to his sons, in chapter 49, verse 10, it says that the scepter will not depart, not from Joseph, but will not depart from Judah. This knowledge of the promised king wasn't just inside the Jewish circle. It wasn't just inside Abraham's family. This knowledge was even shown when the Moabites, who were enemies of Israel, they wanted to curse Israel. Balak would summon Balaam, and he would say, Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. So Balaam was hired by Balak to curse Israel, the Moabites, the enemies of the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 6 to 7, this is what Balaam says when he was commissioned to curse Israel. And he says, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters, water shall flow from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Seed, Zerah. This infuriates Balak. He's like, I hired you to curse these guys. Why are you blessing them? And he goes even further. He goes, curse them again. And in verse 17, this is what Balaam says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This is so reminiscent of Genesis 3.15. And even when we get to Deuteronomy, Moses, the great prophet who would lead the people out of Egypt, would tell them that this king, this prophet that would lead them, would be someone from among you. In Deuteronomy 8.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So we see this prophet is also, ha- also has a kingly duty to lead the people. The leader of the people, the kingly role, will also teach them like a prophet teaches them about God and his ways just as Moses did, but this prophet would be as well. And so we continue to go down the line. We see that in Judges, it's specifically stated, clearly stated, 
again and again, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel again and again and again in Judges. And when Israel does set up a king, there is a common theme on the role of these kings. Just like Pastor Paul prayed, it is not like the earthly kings. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 to 15, this is what God says through Samuel to David. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So when this king is set up, stripes and suffering are associated with the king. Stripes and suffering are associated with the king. It brings us all the way back to the beginning of our theme of the suffering king. God shows us from the very beginning what kind of king is to come, what kind of king is promised to us. Suffering and the crown go together. But David is not the promised king. And all the kings that come after him are a disgrace during which the prophets emerge and would pick up the pieces the kings should have been pointing to. And there is a prophet named Isaiah, and in chapter 53, we see that the king that is to come is a suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This isn't suffering just for suffering's sake. The suffering king shown to us is a new representative, a better Adam. And through his sacrifice, we would be healed. And isn't sacrifice and suffering associated with prophets and priests? How can it be for kings? In Zechariah 6, there is an enacted parable by Zechariah the prophet. And this enacted parable is to Joshua. Joshua, which eventually turned to the name Yeshua, which is short for Yehoshua. Or Joshua. But there's an enacted parable. And if you're seeing the connecting dots here, that's what the Bible is literally doing. It's overt. It's there. In, in Zechariah 6, there's an enacted parable by Zechariah the prophet to Joshua, the, not king, but high priest. 
Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. When they first heard this, people said, this can't be it. You don't set a crown on the high priest. You set a crown on the king. But it clearly says, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this prophecy would have confused everyone. Wait, take silver, gold, make one crown and put it on Joshua, the high priest's head? And so we're seeing this unfolding of a picture over and over again and more unfolds. It's getting clearer and clearer. So the king and the priest are not two offices, but it's one, one seat. Why does the king have to do this? Why does the king not only have to lead the people like a king, but represent the people like a priest? And this is where we get to the gospel point. But because of his great love for us, God sent his son. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he is baptized, in Matthew 3.17, God says, This is my beloved servant with whom I am well pleased. Jesus takes on this crown. Jesus takes on the crown of the suffering king and he goes out into the wilderness and he faces the enemy that Adam lost to. He takes on the stripes of his people and he gets crucified on the cross. Why the suffering king? He suffered so that we could be right with God once again. Once enemies of God, rebelling against his created order and deserving just wrath, through Christ, the suffering king, we are made right with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, this is Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the better Adam. And we go on to the passage that we read today. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now Paul gets to extrapolate on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who, in verse 6 he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? All the heavenly glories. He was God. He is God. All the heavenly glories that God has, he would empty it. And by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he condescended to earth. This is the condescension of Christ. This is what was prayed about before. 
And we don't just see this in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is prophesied. In Isaiah 6, which we all are familiar with, where we see that the attribute of God, which is repeated three times, the only attribute of God that's repeated three times, which God is holy, holy, holy. This attribute was directed toward God. But we see in verse 1 what was, that, what was shown in that vision of this holy, holy, holy God that the train of his robe would fill the temple how does the train of the robe fill the temple? Because he was coming down. And not only that, in verse 2, it said the seraphim were above him. You would never have anything, any symbol above you if you were the highest, if you were the most high. This is unheard of, especially, especially if you're in the context of Asia. You would never let someone's feet touch your head if they were below you. You would never let someone's feet above you. And yet it says in verse 2, the seraphim were above him. What are we seeing? What is Isaiah seeing the picture of? It is the condescension of God. Even Isaiah 6, which would proclaim God as holy, 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 was showing us a God who is a suffering servant. And in being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is why central to our salvation is Jesus Christ. And central to Christ is his suffering and sacrifice for us. The king that was promised is a humble king. And salvation is in no one else other than Jesus Christ. That is why the good news is, this is the good news, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the suffering king that is promised to us, and he is Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, thanks be to him, and all glory to Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the promised servant, the promised king, has been shown to us in your word. We thank you that you loved us so, that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive us our sins and to make us right with you again. We thank you, God, for this gospel message that we have received. And we pray now that we will live by this gospel and that we, as now your ambassadors, would be able to proclaim this truth to whomever 
and wherever you send us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, I hope that you have a wonderful and blessed post-service with your family. And if you want to join us on Zoom, there are the links in the bulletin. Have a blessed Sunday.